There are moments in life that shape us, moments that invite us to something more. Meet my friend, Sarah Little. So I was living in Chicago. I was studying documentary filmmaking and I was modeling uh, between Chicago and New York. And I, the irony is that I, w- I was modeling and I was being told, you look great, you look thin, you look beautiful, but I was, I was so unhappy. I had never been unhappier with my body and appearance than I was when I was immersed in, in the fashion world. I just, I saw something different in my life and I didn't know what that was. Um, but I was kind of at my breaking point and my dad came to Chicago one weekend on business and he, we had this conversation over dinner and he just was like, Sarah, in life, we all have to fight battles. Is this really a battle that you want to continue fighting? So in that moment, I, I felt God, God's presence. Um, I felt the stars were aligning. I felt like I had to release something in order to make space for something greater, even though I didn't know at the time what that thing was. This is an extraordinary person that I get to introduce you to today. Hi, this is Tracy Tiernan, and you're listening to Your Day Brighter, real stories, real conversations, and real reasons to have hope in this world. My friend Sarah Little is one of those reasons. Sarah, 23 years old, has spent time in nearly 40 countries around the world. Uh, She's lived in many places around the world as well, including the Middle East, Europe, North and Central America. And Sarah has a heart for the world, especially young women and girls the most vulnerable in some of these countries who have been marginalized, who have been oppressed, girls that have incredible stories of strength and courage and resilience. Sarah spent a good bit amount of time in refugee camps in different parts of the world, making friends with some of these amazing young women, documenting their stories. And she is on a mission to amplify their voices and helping them reach for the stars. Sarah Little is an author, a journalist, an advocate, and founder of More to Her Story, moretoherstory.org, which is a, a platform for girls to creatively express themselves and share a little bit of their stories. I'm very excited to share this conversation with you today. I just know that you're going to be encouraged, inspired, maybe even shocked by some of the things that she shares, the things that she's learned from some of her refugee friends, the plight of girls around the world is something that we can make better. And it starts with hearing a little bit of their story. So let's jump in. Talking to my beautiful friend, Sarah, and it's hard for me to formulate questions for you for this interview because I know you really well and I love you deeply and I want people to know everything. Like, I want to be able to uh, correctly um, convey all of the amazing things about you. I think you have so much wisdom and insight and things to show, um, to teach the world, really. But I realized, like, okay, Trace, we got to start. We got to start somewhere (laughs) that makes sense. And one of the big themes in your life and and in this season of your life, um, Hmm. most recently, like last a couple of years especially, has been courage and friendship. And you Mm. intentionally sought out friendships with very brave girls Mm. all around the world, um, with with people that mean a lot to you. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear about those girls. But first, Sarah Little, would you give me your definition of (laughs) 
courage? Just your personal definition. My personal definition, well, Tracy, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> I'm very honored. Michael. <laughs> and I would say that my definition of courage is the ability and willingness, because some people, we're all able, but not all of us are willing to stand up for what we believe in and what we believe is right. I think that most of us, um, whether we know it or not, live our lives in fear, um, whether that's subtle or more prominent. Um, I think we all live our lives in fear. So that ability and that willingness to step outside of how we normally live. And um, I think that's courage. How have you seen that courage lived out in this world? Tell me about some of your special friends. My special friends. Yeah, um, you've got deep <laughs> friendships with people all around the world. Uh, maybe if you could pick two of the girls mm. that have really, mm. uh, you've deeply connected with. So I took an intentional um, year out of school to um, travel and interview young refugee women uh, who had been displaced by war and conflict. Mm. And along the way I, I met, I traveled to a, a lot of places and I met girls from 10 different countries, um, each with very unique, courageous stories. One of those girls, actually I met through Instagram, crazy enough. Really? And yeah, the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, they posted this photograph uh, on their Instagram page of this 16-year-old Afghan girl named Medina. And she had like this raven black hair and these, these ebony eyes and just like, you know, that pierced into your soul. And I was like, I really, really want to meet this girl. <laughs> I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was here in Maryland when I was scrolling through Instagram, just looking and I saw this photo and I stopped. And, and so I, I reached out to the one contact I had at UNHCR and I like did not think that they would respond. This is the UN. And, you know, literally that same day, this woman got back to me and um, said, yeah, Medina, she lives in Brussels and she and her family fled Afghanistan uh, about a year ago and have been in Belgium. And she and, um, you know, she has this incredible story, but you have to come to Brussels to meet her, obviously. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I um, got in touch with the people on the ground in Brussels and uh, they graciously were like, okay, you should come here and we can facilitate that introduction to Medina and interview her for your project. And so I, I flew to, to Belgium and I, I, I put that on like, I, um, what's the word? I added that trip to my other trip. So I didn't just fly directly to B Brussels the next day, <laughs> but um, I, I got to Brussels and I met Medina and she is one of the most courageous girls that I've ever met. Her, she was 11 years old, living in Afghanistan, and her her father wanted to marry her um, at 11 years old to his 45 year old business partner. At 11 years old. At 11 years old, and she didn't even know what marriage was. Right, you know, she'd heard about it in you know, books and movies and her sister, Monawara, they would talk about it because they're sisters and be like, oh, maybe one day we'll meet our Prince Charming and run away together. But never in her life did she envision marriage at 11 years old to a 45 year old man that her father 
you know, arranged for her. And she and her mother, you know, was married at 13. It was traditional, it was customary, and um, it still is in in many parts of the world and in Afghanistan, but um, her mother didn't want the same life for her daughter because she saw something in Medina. She saw that resilience, that bravery, um, and that something, that grit in Medina. And she didn't want that grit to be stolen uh, from her. Uh, And so she, her mother, who I think is like also the bravest woman ever, her mother literally took her, her sister and her brother and her like little baby, her newborn baby and, and uh, fled Afghanistan in the middle of the night. They, they, they fled, they, they took everything, um, left her father and yeah, they, they came to Europe and, and UNHCR kind of took them under their wing. But I mean, that, that, that was the story of Medina and she and I have become very good friends and I've gone back to, to visit her uh, a couple of times in Brussels and just kind of developed that, that friendship. And um, I mean, that's still, she, she, she's just one of millions of girls. I mean, there's nearly 4 million children out of school today in Afghanistan and 60% of those are girls. And um, one in three girls are married before their 18th birthday. And so it's very common. This is, this is the norm. And so Medina was just one of you know, the lucky ones that, that was brave enough um, to escape, but also um, yeah, had, a, had a mother who was her advocate and who wanted that for her. You haven't pursued um, getting to meet these girls um, just to do a project. You're your desire behind this was so much greater than that. Like you really wanted understanding. You wanted friendship. Um, You wanted them to feel um, your love, your interest, your, your genuine um, care about them. What did you learn from hearing her story, Sarah? Was there like a nugget that you carry with you when you think of Medina specifically? that's kind of affected how you live your life now? Hmm, that's a great question. I, I mean, the truth is that every single girl that I've met has, has affected me. And, and I, think about, I think about these girls every single day and they affect how I live my life because um, of what I choose to post on social media, of what I choose to, of how I choose to talk about certain places in the world that are generally talked about in a one-dimensional way or thought about in a one-dimensional way. Yeah. Um, I, I want people to see the, the multiple, the, the multi-dimensional um, places that I've seen and, and people that I've met um, because the truth is like no person is, is one-dimensional. And these girls, I mean, courage is just a great word to sum it up. I mean, I think about their courage every single day and it helps me to be brave in whatever I'm doing. Um, no matter how small it is, um, and integrity. I think about, you know, the integrity that these girls have, and uh, it helps me to to sharpen my own integrity. Well, yeah, um, and part of that integrity, integrity is such a, a big, beautiful, rich word mm-hmm. and concept. But part of it is like being true to yourself, right? Right. Exactly. Being true to what you what you really believe. How is how's Medina doing now? The last time I saw Medina was, it was early 2019. It was early last year. And um, 
I went back to Brussels for about a week and we had a photo shoot together in Brussels <laughs> and it was so much fun and we just gallivanted around the city and um, <laughs> we ate ice cream cones and and just kind of like you know we shopped it was so much fun and um, this <laughs> wild you know like 18 year old girl and wild in the best way just completely <laughs> liberated just completely true to herself and and that that's the most beautiful part about it to me is like she feels the liberty to be completely herself and um that is something that she didn't she didn't feel yeah. before and and there's there's many reasons for that i mean it wasn't just because of the country that she was born in but it was it was for a number of different factors but like the fact that she does feel that freedom now is beautiful that's beautiful. Can you tell me about uh, another one of your special friends? Special and unique in your life. Um, so my friend, Allah, she, uh, not to be confused with Allah. <laughs> right. um, she, she corrected me on that the first time I met her. She's like, you know, my name is not God. <laughs> so it's Allah. Um, Allah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I still get confused, to be honest, because they, it's hard to differentiate. <laughs> but um, I met Allah when she was uh, 18 years old, and she lives in Zatari refugee camp, which is home to 80,000 Syrian refugees um, in Jordan. It's 10 miles south of the Syrian border. And I spent the most time um, out of all my travels, spent the most time there um, in Jordan and getting to know these these young women in Zatari camp, and she was the first girl that I met, or one of the first girls. And Allah was, her story is extremely unique because she um, was married at 16. So she, uh, Allah was walking to school one day, she was 16 and walking with her friends. And this young man, I guess, saw her from across the street. She didn't see him, but he saw her. He thought she was beautiful and she is beautiful. And so he went to, after school that day, she came home and her father said that, you know, some young man had come to the, the, the house that day and wanted to marry her, essentially asked for her hand in marriage. And she said, who is this man? Like, I've never seen him before. And uh, they, you know, had a meeting, um, which is very customary. The families meet briefly, um, not alone, but they, they meet with the families together for maybe like 20, 30 minutes max. And then they, uh, they decide, you know, she decides if she wants to go through with this and she said, okay, you know, um, I'll marry this man. Uh, if, you know, he likes me. He's, he's a respectable man in society. People like him comes from an honorable family. And so they were married and it didn't go well. Uh, one of the typical things of being married in particularly Syrian societies where you would go to, you would live at the home of the, the husband um, with, the, with his mother, with his, you know, in this case, his mayor as well. So his the whole family. Family, yeah. Right. So Allah actually had to, she moved in with her husband and his family and that didn't go well. And they kind of ostracized her. Um, and it wasn't a good situation. And so she ended up, long story short, wanting to get a divorce uh, from this man. It was probably two years in and he was traveling very often. So she didn't even see him that much. And he was like, I want to, I want to divorce this man. And it was, it was hard because in that society, um, 
culturally speaking, it's not very, it's not very common for a woman to ask for a divorce. Um, and in that, in a refugee camp, like you can imagine news spreads very quickly. Yeah. So Allah's family really had to kind of take all that into consideration um, before giving their blessing to like divorce. And they did. I mean, her father is, you know, he raised only, only girls. <laughs> and so he's a girl advocate. And he said, I want my daughter to have the best life. I'd rather her get an, a great education than to be married to someone she doesn't love. And so they supported her uh, 100% and even like at the cost of their own reputation. Wow. And so, yeah. And so Allah got a divorce and now she, um, when I met her, she was, she was shy, very timid, um, very skeptical of me <laughs> and my motives. And then when we became friends and I went to her family's home and I got to sit with them and um, we shared tea and biscuits and stories. Um, she became much more comfortable with me and, and we became friends and um, she opened up about her story in her life. And she just said that because she, I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak for her, but um, she told me that just like being like getting a divorce has been the most um has been the most courageous thing that she's ever done and that she wants other young women to know that it's okay um, regardless of the culture that they come from regardless of like what other people say doesn't matter what people say um to do to follow your heart and to be true to yourself um that's what matters and now her little sisters are saying i don't want to get married i want to go pursue my education and uh wow. that's because Allah, you know showed uh, that example to wow. them so the idea of getting married um, at 16 in Allah's case, um, and in uh, Medina's case, you know, it's, uh, or you said 11 years old is, is, is very common. That it, It's very hard for us to wrap our American brains around this, but culturally that's very acceptable. And so for, for a young woman that's growing up in a culture where that's just how things are done, to be able to want for something different, for her to have the courage to find her voice and speak up. Um, talk about it, courage. Right? Talk about courage. Yeah. When you have all the cultural pressure, like you have it, it's not like you have somebody in front of you that's done that before that you can say, Oh, I want right. to like, you, you must. She was really a trailblazer. Yeah. A trailblazer. That's a good word, a way to put it. So Sarah, these are just two of your friends that you've shared mm -hmm. with us about. And, um, I, I can't wait for, for people to be able to read um, your book that will be coming very soon. It's called More to Her Story. Um, and that's what these friendships um, have turned into. I think the friendship really was the most important thing for you and that connection to girls. Can you tell me the heart behind that? Like, why did you want to, to meet and be able to share their stories. Why is that so important to you? I mean, we all have stories living inside of us. Stories are buried treasures within each of us, desperate to come out. That's kind of how I think about it. And um, storytelling, you know, can be told through countless mediums. Um, you know, stories can be told through writing, through song, through dance. You know this better than anybody. You tell stories <laughs> in your in your singing and. Um, Every morning every, on the radio, you tell stories. So stories are a window um, into people's souls. For me, um, I guess I can just back up a little bit uh, and just kind of explain why 
like what even compelled me to, to start doing this. So I was living in Chicago. I was studying documentary filmmaking because I wanted to tell stories through film. And I was modeling uh, between Chicago and New York. And I, the irony is that I, I was modeling and I was being told, you look great, you look thin, you look beautiful, but I was, I was so unhappy. I had never been unhappier with my body and appearance than I was when I was immersed in, in the fashion world. I just, I saw something different in my life and I didn't know what that was, um, but I was kind of at my breaking point and my dad came to Chicago one weekend on business and he, we had this conversation over dinner and he just was like, Sarah, in life, we all have to fight battles. Is this really a battle that you want to continue fighting? Meaning the and, yourself and your body image or? Yeah, the, yeah. The fight to, you know, lose more weight. And my agents kept telling me, lose more weight, lose more weight. And I was at my lowest weight. I couldn't physically lose anymore. And so it was just this like mental game that I, I was playing with myself. And it was also superficial, like for what? Mm. Um, and so after my dad came that weekend and we had that conversation, something inside of me kind of shifted. And I called my agent literally the next day. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and she's like, I know. <laughs> That's okay. And so in that moment, I, I felt God, God's presence. Um, I felt the stars were aligning. I felt like I had to release something in order to make space for something greater, even though I didn't know at the time what that thing was. That's powerful and, what you just said. I got, I got a double click on that. That's really powerful. That's like a, that's a powerful truth. You had to release something yeah, I had to release something in order to make space for something greater. Um, wow, and you and didn't even know what it was yet. I didn't, I didn't, but I felt, I felt God's prodding. I felt something stirring, and I wanted to follow that. And so I, I, I took a gap year from school, essentially. My parents and I decided we're going to take a, a year off, kind of see what God has um, for you, and chasing meaning and purpose in life. And so I, I researched some organizations um, that I could potentially volunteer with. And I found this refugee organization based in London. And I said, okay, you know, I'll reach out to them. And, and I had one phone call on Skype with this woman. And she's like, okay, you know, come, you know, or she, she actually, it very vague. It was a very vague phone call, but I felt like, okay, this is a, a legitimate organization. So I booked a one-way flight to London, no plan, no agenda, really, um, staying with a friend to let me crash with her. And I arrive in London and the first morning I get there and I, I call this organization. <laughs> I, I, or I call this woman um, because I couldn't find a number or an address for the organization online. And so I called the woman. I'm like, where am I supposed to go? she picks up and, and there's kind of this pause on the other end of the phone and she's like you know actually this is a remote internship like no one is based in london um we all work from different places <laughs> <laughs> and so there was just like this moment of like okay i you know i'm here in london i don't know what i'm doing i have no agenda my plans have fallen through um what am i supposed to do now and so I end up staying in London for about three months, working remotely with this organization. And at this point, it's the fall of 2017. So it's one of the heights of the Syrian civil war. Um, and by that point, nearly a third of, or there were nearly six and a half million Syrian refugees 
um, nearly a third of the global refugee population. And it was also the time when the Rohingya people were fleeing Myanmar uh, to Bangladesh. And so these, these refugee crises were just happening and, and the media was just portraying these horrendous images that the three-year-old you know, Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, who just got washed up on shore, that image, I don't know if you remember that one, Tracy, yeah. but like, yeah. yeah, and that images like those um, were the kind that we were seeing consistently as the public. And I, I remember seeing a headline that just said, um, Myanmar's army methodically raping refugees. And I just remember thinking, seeing that, like, what does that headline mean to a 21-year-old girl living in Wisconsin, like, who has never met a refugee, doesn't really keep up with the news or what's happening in the world? What does that headline make her think? Um, taking out the, like, barbarity of, of it for a second. I just can't imagine, like, what those headlines, or how those headlines make it any easier to relate uh, or, or empathize with <laughs> with a young Rohingya woman who's running for her life. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so I, I had to kind of, I, I had those, those three months in London just kind of think about the next season of life, what I wanted it to look like, what I wanted it to be about. And, and I decided I wanted to go and speak to refugees and displaced people firsthand. I wanted to actually understand it from, from their perspective. I was tired of seeing news reports and, and images and, um, you know, dead bodies on the screen. Like I, I wanted to literally talk to people um, living through it. And I didn't really have a plan in mind. I didn't know what I was gonna do with these stories. I just had a strong urge to hear them. And I didn't consider, I didn't consider myself a, a journalist or a psychologist or anything. I was just like, I wanna go and, and talk to these girls because I'm curious about their lives. And so I went to Jordan. I booked a one-way flight to, to Jordan and uh, the organization there um, hosted me, Questscope. They, they were amazing. They granted me access into, into the camp and I got to meet young women um, from Syria and just kind of delve into those, those friendships. And I stayed there for about uh, two months and then I kind of was back and forth. Um, and here you are, so you're 23 year old, 23 years old now. And so this is all happening from the time, like you're in London at like 21. I was 20 when I was in London. And then I was 21, like during this, most of my traveling and like, and um, yeah. meeting girls, I was 21. Yeah. I just, I mean, so for people that don't know you, they're going to be like, what? 21 year old has the First of all, that, that curiosity, just that natural curiosity to want to know. I want to know the stories. I want to go. I want to hear. I want to listen. That thing that's driving you to go. And the courage. We're going back to that word courage. Mm -hmm. Where did that come from in you? Can you talk about that? Was there ever a barrier to, oh, I don't know if I can go there by myself, or I don't know if I can go spend three months in Jordan. Tell, um, tell us why you didn't let fear get in your way. Honestly, I attribute all of my courage to to God. Um, I mean, I yeah, I don't. I, it's not it's not something that I can just like pull out of me and and it's there. Like it's <laughs> uh, it's God. And you know, I think also my upbringing and my exposure to to different cultures growing up. Um, I didn't really get into that much, but I I had a somewhat unique upbringing. Had 
been to 36 countries by the time I was 18 and attended schools on four different continents and um, lived in the Middle East when I was a teenager. Um, so I think that uh, that courage, I guess you can call it, or, or whatever, I mean, that, that probably does stem from my, my childhood um, and, not, and just kind of always being thrown into situations that, are, that, that were kind of, I guess, different, I guess you could say. You can say different, yes. <laughs> yeah. And very um, connected to what you were saying about how does the story of, this, uh, of the, these refugees, how, do, how does the girl that's growing up in the Midwest relate and connect? And right. you're, you are able to, um, to be able to build that bridge in many ways. I've said, you know, you've been, would you call yourself like a global citizen? I mean, you have lived all over the world and you're, you're more comfortable traveling than I am. <laughs> I have always admired like, you know, just your, um, the way that you navigate the world. The world is very small when I'm in your company. And I love that. <laughs> I, I love you and you and your mom and your dad, you've made the world feel closer. Mm. Um, and more like a, a like a world community. It's one of the great gifts mm. of friendship with you. I see it as like God's positioning in your life. This very unusual upbringing that you've had. Um, because of that, you have a great love for all kinds of people all over the world. And this positioning of you now at this age, the mm. age you are to really have a heart for these girls and to want to make their stories known. Do you like see God's hand and moving all that stuff around to this moment in time? I do, I do. Um, yeah, God has just always, I mean, he's been present like throughout, throughout this entire journey. And I've, I feel like, I mean, the journey is obviously still ongoing and it will be going for, for my whole life. But um, in the past couple of years, especially, I, I've definitely felt his hand um, kind of, shake like his hands kind of shake me awake if that makes sense I felt like I was asleep maybe um before and I remember actually coming home one day from from Zatsudi camp and and I had dinner with a friend in Amman and she is actually the girl the first girl that you know made me want to be a feminist and um she told me that you know she didn't feel like she was a human being half the time and that and that there was something in that where she just said it matter of factly like that was just kind of the way she went through life was she just didn't even feel um in her culture and her society you know the way that she had been treated I guess you know growing up as a, as a girl like she didn't feel like she mattered at all and to me like there was something in that that just really struck a chord and, and I went back into my hotel room and I just remember crying like bawling and just not really knowing how to how to digest that um because it felt so normalized and wow. to me that wasn't normal like being raised by two parents who gave me the world who wanted to see me thrive and succeed in life and contrasting that with someone who like didn't feel that way and and you know who felt less than human and who had lived through a war or you know per per being persecuted um just for being female like those like that just was very hard for me to to reconcile in my mind and that's when I decided to become a feminist I was like you know I didn't understand the need for it to be honest as crazy as that sounds growing up in this 
society, in my family, I was lucky enough and privileged enough to have a family that really believed in me. Um, and so I didn't see the need for it. I didn't get this whole firebrand feminist movement until as a young adult woman, I, I, I ventured outside of what I knew and started speaking with girls that didn't have the same life that I had or the same upbringing that I had um, or lived in the same, kind, the same culture um, or society that I did. So yeah, it was in those kinds of conversations where something was sparked inside of me and, and God kind of was like, I felt God being like, this is, this is your problem too. Like, this is not just wow. a them problem. This is not over there. Um, this, is, this is affecting you. In fact, this affects everybody. Nobody is exempt from, from this problem. It's not a national problem. It's not a political problem. It's not, it's, it's not a cultural problem even. It's, it's a world problem. Mm-hmm. And what people don't seem to get is that when, when gender equality increases, poverty decreases societies, economies thrive when girls are given the same opportunities as boys. I feel like the word feminism is so loaded. It has so much baggage to it. And I, I was naive. I didn't get that either. I remember when I like made that mental shift, I was speaking with a, a young woman um, from Saudi uh, Arabia and she, you know, had her master's in social justice. And, and we're, we're having this talking over dinner one night and she said, you know, Sarah, are you going to write this book from a feminist perspective? And instinctively I said, yes, of course I am. Like, what do you mean? Like, this is gender equality we're talking about. It's not, you know, men versus women. It's just equality. And, and she was like, you know, I just would be really careful writing it from that perspective. And she said it a bit more aggressively than that, but I, it got me thinking like, why, why is this such a loaded word? And like, and why do I need to be careful to, like calling myself a feminist? Why do you think it is such a loaded word? And why do you have to be careful? I probably don't have the authority to say because I wasn't alive when, when you know, all this, uh, when the Gloria Steinem movements became more prominent and um, all of this. But I just know that there's history attached to it as with a- anything in life. Yeah. <laughs> and um, people will have different, ideas of what feminism means and even though the dictionary definition is equality on the basis of the sexes it's pretty straightforward but people like to kind of overcomplicate it tell tell me about more to her story mm-hmm. um and and some and the platform that goes along with it and what you're really hoping to accomplish by sharing um stories of your friends as well as the book is really also about your heart being transformed through these friendships too. So tell us about more to her story. Yeah, more to her story. It started as a book, and it has become so much more than that. It's a platform. It's a place of self-expression. It's a social media movement. It's a microphone, really, uh, for girls and young women to express themselves and. The book, I'm not totally sure when is gonna when it's gonna come out, especially now um, in the midst of this pandemic. But I am excited to announce the the platform, which is gonna be launching within the next couple of weeks, and it's a self expression platform where girls um, and young women can submit uh, stories, poetry, raps, um, short films. Uh, anything they want artwork 
and there it can be showcased for the world to see and they can submit it anonymously or not um and it, it's going to be revolved around subjects that are hard to talk about often <laughs> girls are are silent about these issues um, example, because society tells them to be silent. An example would be um, talking about periods. I mean, period poverty is such a huge deal in so many, so many countries around the world. And I, I don't want to misquote this, but I think one in either one in three or one in five girls um, in India don't, when they start their period, they, they drop out of school. Uh, completely. And then in some regions, it's closer to four, four out of five girls drop out of school uh, mm -hmm. when they start their period because they don't have access to menstrual products. They don't have access to, to hygiene or, or anything like that. And maybe they have to walk a few miles every day to get to school. And, um, and even in the U.S., I mean, it's, I was shocked. I mean, like, ugh, I want to find the statistic, but it's, it's something, again, like one in five girls, like they frequently skip school when they, get when they start menstruating it that just was shocking to me and so that's something that also is taboo to talk about in many cultures girls don't even know what their periods are when they when they start some girls have told me you know like on their wedding night they didn't know what was going to happen and it was just kind of a surprise when they're like especially if they get married young like 16 17 i mean and like on their wedding night they, they just don't know what's going to happen and then it happens and they're like what is this is this shameful like do you know what i mean like yeah <sighs> so it's just things like that that are hard to talk about sometimes and that need to be talked about more and you're giving them an opportunity to have a place of expression can you tell us uh what that platform will be and what it will look like. I know it's unfolding and it's getting ready to to be launched. Yeah, so it's going to be a website at mortarherstory.org. There's a place on the website where girls can submit um, anything they want and then there's going to be a corresponding Instagram page where we're going to be showcasing and posting um, certain submissions from girls and we're going to also involve, you know, NGOs and we're going to partner with different NGOs um, every, every couple of months to highlight different girl issues. I'm hopeful to engage some, I already have, but I, I'm hopeful to engage some more um, social media influencers and people with, a lar with large platforms so that they can also promote this platform and reach more girls. That is just awesome. That's so exciting. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm excited about your book as well because you're an amazing writer, a gifted writer. And I've had the privilege yes. of reading some excerpts and from more to her story. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. Sarah, if you had to list like the top three things that you would love to affect uh, some sort of change um, in mm. as a result of your advocacy work. Ooh, top three things. I would say... I'm really passionate about ending child marriage. Yeah. Marriage affects girls in every culture, every society around the world. And if they get married at a young age before 18, before 17, I mean, it's, it really does affect every aspect of a girl's life. I remember speaking with a friend of mine. I was, I was in Kenya in Kakuma refugee camp, um, which is home to 200,000 refugees from all across Africa. And, I spent a week in Kakuma in the camp and I got to know this South Sudanese 
girl named Elizabeth, and we were talking about our biggest fears. And Elizabeth said to me, my biggest fear is getting married because when I do, my life will be over. Wow. And that was just, it was really heart-wrenching. Um, it's just so different from how I view marriage, how my friends view marriage here. To hear a girl my age, you know, say something so deep and, and from her soul and, and sincere, like that she really feared, genuinely feared marriage because her life would be over. I mean, that, that was just, that was so sad. Um, and that's the reality for, for so many girls. Um, they really, like, it, it becomes like, um, they become housewives. Some of them feel like, I've, I've heard the term, like, was it slave? Like, I mean, obviously that's a very intense, extreme version, but like they feel, some of the girls feel like right. they are enslaved to their husbands. So it's a big problem. Yeah. And so that, that was the first thing. And then the second thing would probably be like, just being able to talk openly about, about issues and not being afraid to have conversations about things that matter. And that's one of the reasons why I, I created Mortar Her Stories was because I wanted girls to be able to start talking about things that are normally considered um, taboo to talk about. And it might not be taboo in our culture, but <laughs> in, in many other cultures it is. So a third thing, I would love to engage young men in the conversation. I feel like young men have felt ostracized and isolated from the conversation and from gender equity, from the feminist movement. I mean, I feel like it's a scary word, feminist, for a lot of men. <laughs> and um, I want that to be shattered. I want that stigma to be shattered. I want young men to feel like they can participate in the conversation, to engage wholeheartedly, to not shy away from having these tough conversations, um, especially in cultures where it's not common for for boys and girls to, to talk about these things. Um, that was another thing, actually, I, in, in Zatari camp um, in Jordan, uh, in one of my interviews with a girl, she said that in being in a refugee camp, in this setting, it's actually been easier for girls and boys to have conversations and to talk um, than it was back in Syria, um, which was interesting. Those three things are, are profound and powerful. Um, and I love that you're not excluding the young men from the conversation. I mean, because, you know, the true definition, like, as you said, of feminism, it's, just, it's about gender equality. It's not that we're, right. we're battling against one another. It's that we're coming together. No. Yeah, we have to have everyone a part of the conversation if we expect to make anything change, right? <laughs> Sarah, you know, you've been on such a journey um, pursuing uh, a modeling career um, to um, school. Um, different versions of school, um, taking a year off, traveling, discovering. I, I think that you have a great gift for writing and a heart of compassion. I, could you talk to other young people right now um, who are in that in-between space? Can you talk to other young people who might be doing some of the same wrestling that you were doing with typical things that an American 20-some-year-old would wrestle with? How do they let go of the one thing to make space for the bigger thing? Hmm, such a great question. A lot of people ask me, 
how did you begin this journey? Did you just get on an airplane and leave? <laughs> and that is literally w what I did. Um, it wasn't that, it wasn't much more complicated <laughs> than that. I think the thing I would say to, to other young people who might have, you know, some kind of prodding or, or feeling inside of them, like they need to, they have a bigger vision for their life and they want to pursue that vision. I, I would say just, just do it. To quote Nike, <laughs> right? Just, do just do it. <laughs> There's nothing holding you back other than yourself, other than your fear. I think again to kind of circle back to this idea of courage and and fear. Uh, the two go hand in hand. I mean, there isn't. It's not courage over here and fear over here. It's this one continuous spectrum, and one and, and both are on the same spectrum. And oh. so, in order to kind of tap into your courage, you have to be able to tap into your fear. <laughs> I love how Elizabeth Gilbert she she says that um, whenever she's getting ready to start a big creative project, she literally envisions herself driving in a car, and she's driving the car. And her fear is in the passenger seat. And it's just there in the passenger seat. And, and it's not, she, she doesn't kick it out of the car or try to kick it out of the car before she starts driving. She just starts driving and, you know, has a, has a conversation with her fear every so often, um, but doesn't let it ever get behind the wheel. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And I love that analogy um, because it's, it's so true. I mean, our fear has to kind of come alongside us in every endeavor, in every undertaking, and we have to befriend our fear. So that's what I would say to other young people is to befriend your fear and to yeah. do it. What are you afraid of? I'm gonna have to give a little bit of thought to this, but I, I would say, I guess I fear, I guess there's different kinds of things that come to my mind. On a, on a very personal level, I fear not, not stepping into my full potential, not doing what I feel like I've been placed on this earth to do. I do feel like I have a, a purpose uh, and I feel like God is calling me to a purpose. And if I don't step into that out of, for, for whatever reason, um, whether it be fear or something else, then, then I would be really letting, letting not only God down, but letting myself down. So I fear, I fear that. I, I fear not, not amplifying the, the voices of, of these girls um, in, the way that I, in the way that they would like to be, their voices to be amplified advocating for them well, um, giving uh, voice to their stories in a way that honors and respects the journey that they've been on. So I could talk to you all day. I just adore you so much. And I'm, I'm so proud and excited about what you're doing. Tell me something beautiful that you have seen. I, the first thing that comes to my mind is a story, actually, uh, of beauty. I think, I don't know if I've ever told you the story. I think I might have. I was in Zatari camp with my friend Zad. We were sitting on, on Zad's, you know, bedroom floor um, and on her makeshift bed. And there's just the two of us in, um, in, her, in her room. And, and we were, she, she asked if, if she could pray for us. And so we, and I said, of course. And so we, we were sitting there and she, we, took, we held hands and, and she prayed in Arabic to Allah and I prayed in English to Jesus and it was this this moment of this beautiful surreal moment where two girls from entirely different backgrounds cultures and circumstances really just came together as one and it was in that moment that I just kind of realized the why behind 
this project behind this purpose and this vision and the beauty, the beauty of, of humanity, of even in the midst of conflict and war and being displaced. I mean, like two girls from completely different backgrounds could still come together and, and do something that, that we both cared so deeply about, um, God, just yeah. in different ways. And we expressed that differently, but we did it together. And that was, it was this unifying moment. So more to her story.org is your website and it'll be live soon. Um, mm -hmm. It'll be live soon. I know you've been working hard on it. Um, where and the Instagram also. Yeah. I'm just gonna, yeah, because that's actually where I post more. But um, my Instagram is uh, Sirittles, S-A-R-I-T-T-L-E-Z. And then the Instagram for more to her story um, is more to her story official. What would you love for um, young people in American culture that have maybe never, never had the privilege of traveling outside of the country? Um, what would you love for them to know about the young people of the world? And, and how would you encourage them to, to learn or to educate themselves about that great big world out there? Social media. We have this amazing tool. I don't know if anyone's heard of it. <laughs> social media and technology. And we have been given this gift, right? This, this tool, this treasure that we can use to really connect with people all over the world. Um, I remember nights when I was first starting on this project and I, I would stay up till 1 or 2 a.m. like WhatsApping girls in, in a refugee camp in, in Kenya. Um, and like they would be talking to me about like what their sleeping situation was like or that their mom was, you know, next to them in, in a, a hut full of like 10 other people. And, you know, they had one of these girls had malaria and she was fighting that. And it's like these and we were just having this conversation. When else in history has that been possible to do? Never. And so we have un this unprecedented access um, to the world, to the world's inhabitants. And we need, we need to use that access. We're all the same. <laughs> We all have dreams, we all have passions and desires and goals for our lives and we want the best for our families and whether or not we're living through a war, we all are human beings with voices and stories that matter. I'm glad that I'm in this world at the same time as you. Love you. Your Day Brighter is produced by Brighter Media Group, Tracy Tiernan and John Lawhon. Editing by Julie Gilligan. Make sure you're subscribed, leave a review and tell us what you think of the podcast and make sure you share it with someone who needs encouragement today. Thanks so much for listening and tell somebody your story today or better yet, ask to hear their story.